This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, New Westminster wins big as BC's Court of Appeal upholds the city's rental-only zoning. We look at the precedent it sets for other cities and developers. Plus, run your dishwasher when the sun shines. Are we finally entering the era of smart meters and dynamic pricing? And big fight in little Chinatown. We look at how Chinatowns throughout North America are fighting to survive. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The city of New Westminster has emerged victorious after the B.C. Court of Appeal ruled that the city's rental only zoning bylaw will be allowed to stand. Now, the ruling came down yesterday, and it essentially dismisses a petition from a group of developers. Now, under the bylaw, the city designated 12 city-owned properties and six private properties for residential rental. Now, these properties were built as strata in some cases, but have been operating as rentals for years. Now, after council approved the zoning amendment, uh, the registered owners of all six strata properties took the city to court. Now, this all started in 2018 when the province brought in rental zoning authority for municipalities so cities could protect rentals in existing apartment buildings. Now, in 2019, U.S. City Council adopted those zoning bylaws, applied them, making them the first municipality to do so in the province. Now, the ruling yesterday, and it is a victory for the city of New New Westminster, uh, could have far-reaching implications for New Westminster, but all municipalities in this province. Joining me now to discuss this victory is Patrick Johnston, the mayor of New Westminster. Your Worship, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. I wanted to provide some context before our conversation began. First of all, how important was this victory in your mind that came down yesterday? Well, the most important part is that it means uh, 200 families are secure in their their rental homes that they can afford. They have been secure in the past. So we are they're not going to be facing the threat of demoviction or renoviction or of having the places that they've been renting and living in turned into condos. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to explain the complexity of this a little bit for us. Now, some of these folks, some of these properties, as I said, uh, were private property, and these are six strata properties specifically. Uh, how does that work, that if, if I'm a private owner of, a, of, a, of an apartment, it's strata, why should I not have the right to live in it or rent it out if I want? Yeah, so the properties, the private properties in this case were all buildings that have always operated as rental buildings. And um, they usually received some some support from CMHC back in the days when they used to provide support Mm -hmm. for building purpose-built rental. Um, And so they've always operated as rentals, just that they had a strange tenure in that the owner, instead of owning it as a single building, it owned it as a bunch of uh, disconnected strata lots. So they were all strata, but it was only one owner. So we're not changing how the how the building operates. Um, we are reflecting that it was purpose-built rental as it was built. It just it, the tenure didn't reflect that. So there was a risk that it could be turned into condos. Now we in the city of New Westminster have had a moratorium on conversion of rental properties to condos for years. We simply don't allow it because you know the need to support affordable older rental stock is really important to the city. Mm-hmm. So these six had just sort of fallen through the crack in that moratorium. 
So uh, in this case, give me a sense of what this means for your city moving forward and what you think it means to other municipalities. who are probably watching your community very closely in this court case. What's this mean now? Well, like I said, the most important part is that people, you know, there are 200 families who are more secure in their rental right now in this really tight rental market, which is terrifying for people when they're fearing they may lose their homes right now when we have such low vacancy. But it also means, I mean, this, this is a bit of a precedent by taking it all the way to the appeals and winning an appeal. Uh, this will allow other communities to see how this rental tenure zoning the province has given cities can be applied to protect to protect people who are in uh, sort of perilous rental situations. Uh, what is the rental situation? You've obviously told me it's very tight in New Westminster and many other municipalities, uh, not just here in Vancouver, but throughout the province. Uh, but yeah. give me a sense of, are you able to build more rental right now? And Give me a sense of, the, of, of where you're at as a, as, a, as a city and as a council yeah. in regards to rentals in your community. Well, um, I mean, vacancies are low. Vacancies are below 1% for so long. It's just a not a healthy rental market. Um, and that despite the fact that we are building a lot of purpose-built rental in New Westminster. Um, when this case came, uh, when, this, when we went to, to um, make this bylaw come into place back in 20, early 2019, um, we were told by the, by the development community that if we did this, it would shut down purpose-built rental in New Westminster. They would never invest in more rental in New Westminster. And that simply isn't the case. New Westminster is still... There has been no slowdown in investment in new rental. We're still leading the region in getting purpose-built rental built. Uh, we just broke ground last week on another 300-unit purpose-built rental building in Uptown. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of demonstrates that we can protect the most affordable rental in the city and get new rental investment at the same time. We are really getting it done in New West. Uh, I'm curious, uh, some would argue, look, if you look at some of these older rental buildings uh, in Vancouver and New Westminster, a lot of them were built when the federal government specifically was involved in encouraging rentals to be built, whether, whether it be through tax incentives and policies. But a lot of them came from that era of the 70s and 80s. And as we went to chase and go after the deficit in the 1990s, a lot of these programs were either just uh, pulled back or, or just shut down. What of an, what much, how much of an impact can you as a city actually have when some would argue senior levels of government, and specifically federal government, needs to be doing a lot more to really encourage the, 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 the big jump that we need in rentals? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. We, we can get rental built, um, but we are in a world right now where the newest rental uh, that is being built, just the cost of building new rental, um, isn't affordable to many people. It's not where we think the market would, you know, would have to be to be healthy so that people would have access to the rental they need. Um, this is part of the reason why we have been so active at protecting the older rental in, in town because we have to maintain that older rental to keep the stock up. But you're right. In the 1990s, when the federal government decided to get out of the business of building affordable housing, um, you know, that was now 30 years ago, and we are starting to really feel the effects right now as the, the stuff they did build that long ago is coming towards, you know, midlife and end of life. And the region is growing. The region is growing. We're going to have a million more people living here in the next 20 years. And uh, we simply are not building enough rental to keep up with that demand. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of, of, of the region itself, I had the housing minister on yesterday. We were talking about um, you know, uh, condominiums and, and stratas and 55 yeah. plus. Well, a different topic, but one of the questions yeah. I asked near the end was, he's going to put out a naughty and, and nice list uh, probably in, in, in the weeks ahead, like within this month probably, or very close to it. Uh, he will certainly encourage those that are doing a good job, but those that aren't, uh, he plans hopefully to entirely 
entice them to keep building more. Um, what do we need to do regionally so you can actually encourage some of these communities to build more? Because as much as you're proud of how many rentals you're building, you obviously want to build more. There are laggards in this city as well. How do you encourage them in your mind, in your personal opinion, to start building more and allowing not only just homes but also rentals? Yeah, I'm Jazz, it takes political will to build it. I mean, we need, to, we need to be honest with our communities about the need for housing. Um, I, unfortunately, not, we're not always honest with our communities about the need for housing. Mm-hmm. Now, we need other things as well. You know, housing needs to come with important infrastructure investments. Mm-hmm. And we are, again, at the same time New Westminster is building all this new housing, we are also spending $170 million this year on new capital investments in the city to build the sewers and the electrical lines and the, and the water supply and the recreation centers that people need that comes with housing. And I'm glad that, you know, the, the province did step up and gave us a big investment in a billion dollars for all municipalities in order to help fund that infrastructure to support growth. Because that brings the public along. They need to see amenities coming along with growth. But frankly, it's a housing crisis across the region. And what we need is local governments to show the political will to get it built. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to the open line. Let's go to Scott in Maple Ridge. Hi, Scott. Hi. Well, two things. Firstly... You know, I don't know if we've learned anything from the United Kingdom, but making rental ghettos is not a solution either. But what I wanted to say was, you know, I drive around the lower mainland and in areas where I, where I live. There are large pieces of property that are being held in, in that are con- now considered infill because everything around them has developed. I can think of a one massive one in Port Coquitlam that's located right in the middle of Riverwood, which is completely surrounded by homes that were built 30 years ago now. These properties, you want to talk about taxing people, this, this should be a, a change, their assessment class should be changed and so that they can be uh, isolated and, and taxed higher in order to force them to develop. Um, it's ridiculous that these properties, the, the servicing's all in the ground, mm-hmm. everything, the roads are there, let's build them, but I, we, no idea why they're not being built. And that's just one example. But I'm sure that there are hundreds all over the lower mainland. Mm-hmm. That, that is something that you guys in, in their local government should get on next. Uh, Patrick, your thoughts on that? I mean, the, the the complaint sometimes of City Hall is that it, you know, you can't get approvals done. It's too onerous, mm. uh, bureaucratic. Um, the assessments sometimes are different. It's too costly to build. I mean, I'm asking you a very broad question and from what Scott's saying. What do you say to what some of the comments that Scott made? Yeah, I can go right to what Scott said that. Yeah, we are only allowed to do a single tax rate for all types of residential. We can't do a separate tax rate for single family and for denser forms. But coincidentally, this week is the Lower Mainland Local Government Association meeting where all the local governments come together and we're having a conference. And one of the motions, one of the resolutions at that is Langley City brought forward a motion asking that we can actually do separate assessments so that we could actually charge a separate tax rate for multifamily than we do for single family. Just right, that's right to Scott's point right there. So we don't legally have the ability to do that right now, but that would be an interesting incentive tool to use. And we'll see if the local government, uh, if the local government, uh, LMA, sorry, local government association uh, approves that, and whether the provincial government would allow that to happen if they did approve it. I mean, if you're a betting man, you think that would happen? I mean, it sounds on paper a, a very straightforward thing to do. It makes sense. There's different types of housing. You should be able to do that. Yeah, but having local governments from across the region come together and agree on a significant shift like that, I'm not sure where the vote's going to go. I think it'll be an interesting debate. Because there are perhaps um, some perverse incentives on either side if some communities may use it as a tool to prevent further densification as well. So we need to be careful in how it's applied. 
And I, I guess in some cases it, it, it may be one of those – well, it may be one of those cases where the provincial government be watching and say, look, is this a good thing or not? And let's move forward. Let's not worry about X, Y, and Z community because the vast majority of them think this is a good idea. That's part of it too, I'm, guess, I'm guessing. Exactly. I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier in your comments, I mean, there are some cities who are really interested in getting new housing built and there are some that just aren't that interested. So, Well, I look forward to the – yeah, I look forward to having the Minister of Housing on again because that's going to cause a ruckus, that's for sure. But it's an important conversation to have, that's for sure. Patrick, thank you so much for your time and congratulations to your city on this court victory. Thank you, Jazz. And uh, have a nice day. It's beautiful and sunny outside. Get <laughs> out there. I'm keeping the, 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 the window shut right now because I've got a, another two and a half hours to go. <laughs> then I'll get outside. It is a beautiful day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You may have heard over the last 24 hours that BC Hydro uh, wants to charge you an additional $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity during on-peak periods. And what does that mean? Well, when you use electricity from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m., they're, they're peak hours. They also want to give you a five-cent discount uh, if you use electricity from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So essentially, you, uh, you set the dishwasher up for 11 p.m. or charge your electric vehicle at that time uh, because there is less demand at that uh, particular time. Now, this isn't the first time, this is not the first jurisdiction this is occurring. And of course, Ontario uh, currently offers off-peak rates as well. Now, a lot of this started back, uh, well, good 15 years ago. Um, about 1.9 million electricity meters, or called smart meters, were um, were installed in BC homes throughout our province. Uh, it's not the only jurisdiction. In fact, uh, it's just one of many where they've uh, installed these um, you the smart meters. It's the, the the installation began in the early uh, aughts and it continues. In fact, about two thirds of electricity meters across the U.S. are now smart meters. And what those smart meters can do is they can reduce the cost of meter reading because they don't have to send somebody to your house. But those smart meters can actually send back information from your home directly to the utility, so they know how much usage, or how much data you're using, how much power you're using, which allows them to, of course control and get a sense of what the what uh, the, the the power usage is in your community and in our province as well but the fact that they're rolling out potential discounts and charging you more during peak and off-peak hours is a very interesting conversation joining me now to talk a little bit about bc hydro's time of use rate proposal is keith baldry global bc's legislative bureau chief hi keith hey jazz I'm sorry for the lengthy introduction, but I think you have to put some context to this. First of all, your thoughts on this proposal. I know they said it's voluntary, but when I heard that, I go, well, this is just a start. I think we're heading into that moment where you're finally, it's going to become mandatory one day, but this is how you started, started out. Yeah, I think there was a sense of inevitability 
inevitability attached to this. Back when smart meters were first introduced, this was raised by some who thought, aha, this is all about time of use. And Hydro and the government of the day demand, uh, denied that vociferously at the time, but never really, I don't think, um, abandoned the idea. And I don't think a lot of people believed them that it was never going to happen. So there's an application in front of the BC Utilities Commission, but this fits within the overall um, scheme of things, is something I've been tracking for some time, and that is this real shift. Well, first of all, a real gr- a growth in demand for electricity, and a shift in our in government policy to really ramp up electrification in BC. It's a big part of weaning us off fossil fuels to go to a cleaner fuel, which is hydroelectricity, which we have an abundance of. Well, you don't have an overcapacity, though, and that's that's what we'll be talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, the need now is more electric vehicles come online, uh, and electricity becomes more and more in demand and therefore more precious. Look for hydro to be even more creative when it comes to the use, the development and, and um, uh, production of electricity and its use and its price. Now, we're building a massive dam called Site C. Um, anybody who follows the news would have heard about that over the last few years. Lots of conversations about it being over budget, over cost, but certainly uh, it'll provide significant more power to the province and to its citizens. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, what will it mean once Site C comes on? I think it's 2025 when it does. What will it mean overall in regards to our uh, our ability to create electricity and the consumption and where we're headed? Well, it's going to create 5,100 5, gigawatt hours. So that's a, f- a fair amount, but uh, that's enough to power 1.7 million electric vehicles, just for example. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, the BC government's policy as part of its overall climate plan is 90% of all vehicles sold by the year 2030 have to be electric vehicles. Uh, That's going to require a lot of electricity. The other uh, aspect of this, of course, it's not just about vehicles. The LNG terminals in the northwest part of the province, just the LNG Canada and any others up there, are going to use a tremendous amount of, first, natural gas when they produce, until, until hydro builds a transmission line out there, which they've been instructed to do. That electricity is going to be enormous. Rick McCandless, the former Assistant Deputy Minister in Government, who has intervener status at the Utilities Commission, so he has a, a layer of expertise, he estimates that at least two or three, if not four more uh, equivalent of Site C dams in terms of that type of electrical production is required to, to electrify the LNG plants and other growing demands of electricity in the province. So hydro counters that we're, we're doing a lot of conservation and, and measures and such, and we're you know, only about a fifth of the expected uh, uh, growth is going to be with new supply. That's just an estimate, but uh, they, they can get there with three quarters of it by efficiency and conservation. Where have you heard that before, though? Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is we need more electricity, and CICE is just one of it, and as there's a growing demand for electric vehicles, look for hydro to get very creative when it comes to achieving those efficiency and conservation goals, and I think the first step we saw is with this application in front of the Utilities Commission to have this uh, this change in pricing, depending on what time you use it. I don't want to focus too much time on LNG, but having worked for the industry, I can tell you uh, the LNG Canada site that's being built now, that's running on natural gas. The ancillary power, secondary powers, is electric. But if we were to build a plant the same size running on electric, you take two big plants built, and they would probably suck up all the energy from Site C, yep. uh, if you're lucky. So, and, and then that doesn't even include electric vehicles and just our growing population as well. So you raise a very uh, a very good point, um, point there, Keith. Um, 
you know, when I look at the fact that I'm going to save a bit bit of money if I don't if I use less power during prime hours and then uh, maybe uh, you know turn the dishwasher on at ten o'clock at night, it sounds wonderful. It's kind of like getting a Netflix subscription, though. You know, <laughs> it, when you first signed out, it was nine dollars, and now you're paying eighteen. You go, what happened? It just they slowly inch up and inch up. I just cannot believe that with so many smart meters already installed in this province, that this is going to be the end. It's oh, it's voluntary. It's going to become mandatory eventually. One would assume, and it's and I would assume other jurisdictions because we. It's a public utility. We own BC Hydro. Uh, that we've been fortunate so far. I think we pay the fifth lowest rates in, in North America. But at the end of the day, I can't believe that we are inevitably going to be paying more. If you want to use power to between 4 and 9, you're going to pay more, and you're just going to have to live with it. Yes, and it's going to apply not just to your household heating bill. It's going to apply to your electric vehicle. I think there's going to be creative phase structures associated with that as well. I think we're at the very beginning of something, which is a rapid and significant increase of the use of electricity in all aspects of the economy and society. And that means producing a lot more, but also becoming much more efficient and using it wisely. Uh, but the cost associated with it is not going to go down. It's just going to be up because it's going to be so much part of our basically societal fabric. Uh, let's go to Dave in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very well. What are your thoughts on this issue? So I'm a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. I work for Site C. Yep. So I work for the province directly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we've had many, many meetings. I no longer work for them, but a good friend of mine who's brought over from Iran or came over from Iran as a civil engineer, he's now working for them, and we get together quite a bit, and he's told me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's going to run up to $16 billion, not the 8 to 12 that was promised initially, or $8 billion that was promised initially. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's been in the so, paper, yep. Okay, and then it's also, it's also um, not going to be done by 2025. 2027, most likely, at the earliest. And... Some of the work is not getting done correctly, right? And um, also, he, we, we discussed the fact that in order to electrify um, that many vehicles in the province, our, our, not just our generating capacity, but our infrastructure capacity isn't there. It will take $15 billion to electrify downtown Vancouver, where they expect you know, the most electric vehicles to be. Um, which is what we discussed. Dave, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. I get your point. I, I mean, Dave, there raises some... Well, we knew, we, the budget has been $16 billion yeah. for some time. I mean, that, that hasn't changed. Interesting, I'm not sure his figures are right, but he raises a good point about the electricity that's required in downtown uh, Vancouver. The charging station, the infrastructure is a real challenge. Um, to, to electrify a lot of uh, a lot of vehicles. Not a lot of vehicles um, are in downtown Vancouver in the Yelltown condos. I mean, there's a lot of cars parked down there. But the problem there, Keith, also, as is, 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 uh, Dave said and you're saying, is how do you retrofit older buildings, older condos yep. that are 20, 30 years old? It's, it's a, not it's cheap. It's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And also, uh, you know, we talk about downtown Vancouver. It may be the largest or biggest uh, commuter point for, um, for, con- uh, for commuters right now. The second biggest, I do believe, is UBC in the morning. But m- Mostly, uh, uh, when you when you when you travel in this province, the majority of commuters go suburb to suburb, not suburb to downtown. So it's you know we can talk about downtown Vancouver, but when you're adding 1,500 new residents in Surrey, Surrey's going to need a lot Surrey, of electrification as well, right? Surrey's or Langley, a, a, a part of everything right now, whether it's a lack of police resources or double-decker schools. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also going to be ground zero of EV use and challenges. Yeah, exactly. Let's go to uh, speaking of Surrey. Let's go to Karen in Surrey. Hi, Karen. Hi there, I just wanted to share with you, so Keith will know this, 
There's interruptible customers with LNG. So there's incentives there for industrial and commercial customers not to use prime time with their resources. So the same thing's happening with electricity. And I remember when everybody had a, had an issue with the smart meters, oh, it's going to mm-hmm. impact their brain and everything else. But, you know, reality is, is we're going there. I have a friend in California who has a smart meter, and he actually installed solar panels. He was actually getting a rebate every month, but now the government in California has realized they're losing money, so now they're taxing him on that rebate. So every they're going to get you one way or another, but I I agree with it. We have to be smart about our electricity, but to for the 2030 timeline on electrical vehicles, Electric vehicles, I think that's absurd. It's Absolutely a, that's, ridiculous. That's what government and bureaucrats, politician bureaucrats call aspirational. We're, we're at 16% of all new sales in BC are, uh, with current hydrostats are electric. Mm-hmm. So that's going from 16 to 90 in six years. Yeah, it ain't going to happen. But it's it's aspirational. But I think every family, anybody purchasing a vehicle is at least having that conversation at the dinner table, right? Pretty well, all climate policies are aspirational when you think about it. We're not meeting any of these targets that are set right around the world. People are missing targets, but they are changing behavior. uh, And that is the long-term goal, to change enough behavior and become more efficient to reduce the use of fossil fuels and to be more creative in our use of electricity. Absolutely. Let's go to Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Hi, good afternoon, Jazz. Hey, you know, as for the primetime pricing, I guess you can call it. No, I don't agree with that at all. Not one, not at all. Why? That's just a sneaky. It's a money grab. It's just a plain money grab. You know, they brag about their electric infrastructure. The fact is, you're going to have to build five or six more Site C dams. And no one talks about, Jazz, the environmental impact that it's having on the land. For all these batteries that have to be mined, all the, all the minerals, mm-hmm. sorry, and metals that have to be built you know, created and, and uh, refined all that to build these batteries. No one talks about how, what that's going to do to the environment. When we have fossil fuels, fossil fuel as a natural gas, as, as in oil, that is the best way to go. And it's, it is called, you know what it's called, Jazz? It's called a pipeline, pipelines, actually. That would be the simplest and most cost-effective way. And as for 2030, Jazz, having all vehicles electrified? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. They're living in a fantasy land, you know. It's, it's a dream world this government is in. Rob, thanks for So remember, when we're talking about vehicles, it's not all vehicles. It's new vehicles. New yeah. vehicles that are purchased, and not also, used. And also, like I said, having worked for the LNG industry, for natural gas industry, the energy transition, I think, to, for, for, for oil to surpass coal, it took 75 years. Yeah, 75 and, to 100 years. Yeah, to go from wood to coal, coal to oil. Yeah, uh, it's usually a seventy-five to hundred-year break. Now, so, technology can shorten that, but exactly. I don't think significantly. But you know, we, we may be talking about electricity right now. Other areas are talking about uh, small nuclear plants. Other places are talking hydrogen. You know, what we're talking about today may change twenty years from now. But exactly. I think the trend lines are all going to say we have to make that transition. We just don't know what the route's going to be, but we can't just stand still. And either. technological change is speeding up change like never before. But whether we can meet those targets, no one really knows. Absolutely, Keith. Thank you so much. Right. Great topic. You too. Let's talk a little bit about Chinatown. Now, Vancouver's Chinatown is the third largest in North America. Um, when you look at its history, you can uh, trace it back to the late 1800s when immigrants uh, came to work 
on uh, Canada's railways and, and the mines here in Canada. Uh, it is truly a unique part of our city. It's had a storied uh, and hard-fought past. Uh, in many cases, when you look at um, this, the, the neighborhood today, you have so many advocates speaking on behalf of Chinatown. In many cases, even the last civic election here uh, in Vancouver was in and around Chinatown and safety and security, and in some cases, random violence that we were seeing in Chinatown as well. Now, the pandemic also threatened business districts across the country, but a lot of rhetoric and fears about Chinese Canadians also made it hard for Chinatowns, uh, not only here, but Chinatowns throughout North America and its citizens. From COVID to real estate development to poor municipal planning, a new documentary highlights the challenges faced by Chinatowns in North America. Uh, the documentary, called Big Fight in Little Chinatown, focuses on three or four Chinatowns, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal and New York. Uh, the documentary, as I said, is called Big Fight in Little Chinatown. Uh, its director is Karen Cho. The uh, documentary uh, airs at the Doxa Film Festival uh, this Thursday, and Karen joins us now. Karen, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me. What motivated you to do this documentary? Well, I mean, Chinatown, you know, I have deep family roots in both Montreal and Vancouver's Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And the first documentary film I ever did um, about 20 years ago, it was a film uh, for the National Film Board about the Chinese Head Tax and Exclusion Act. That film, um, you know, took place in, in these Chinatowns and also screened in Chinatowns across the country. So these, you know, are communities and places that have a lot of meaning um, and memory for me. And, you know, fast forwarding from my first film, which is almost 20 years ago, until today, I could see, you know, um, the challenges that a lot of these Chinatowns were facing, um, concerned about them being in these kind of periods of decline, or in the case of my, Montre uh, my Montreal Chinatown, active erasure. So, you know, this was, uh, these were some of the reasons why I wanted to um, you know, really explore in this documentary the kind of um, pressures that all Chinatowns are facing. So I had mentioned in the introduction uh, COVID, real estate development, um, in some cases even poor municipal planning, uh, perhaps even structural challenges with, with cities wanted to, as you say, uh, there's erasure of, of a community. Are the concerns all, uh, are they different in, in these respective communities that you're focusing on? Are they all, when you look at them, similar broad themes that these communities are dealing with? Well, I mean, yes, like every Chinatown is different and they face, you know, different obstacles or struggles. But across the board, you know, there there are similarities in, in what is happening. Um, you know, the film really dives deep into the kind of intersection between racism and urban planning. Um, you know, we, we are looking at in New York's Chinatown, for example, they're trying to put up the world's tallest mega jail right in the heart of Chinatown, right beside a senior center. Um, you know, and, and this kind of thing where, um, you know, urban development uh, plans are, are kind of just dropped onto Chinatown happens again and again. You know, Vancouver saw that with the freeway fight. Um, you know, Montreal uh, also had lots of land expropriated. So, you know, this thing happens again and again. And likewise with gentrification, you know, you know in, the film follows Montreal Chinatown essentially getting swallowed up during covid the most historic block of our Chinatown is swallowed up by um, a developer that is very notorious in Montreal for rental evicting folks. Mm -hmm. And even in Vancouver, you know, um, the, a couple of years ago, there was this big mobilization around the site at 105 Kiefer Street. And of course, just recently, the, you know, the 105 Kiefer development 
has has reopened up because of an appeal that that happened and and even um you know uh, uh, this may 29th at the city hall there there's going to be a meeting about 105 kefir and you know um people are being encouraged again to speak out against uh, this kind of de- uh, gentrifying development that's coming into the Chinatown. Who are the folks resisting on behalf of Chinatown? Is it an older um, uh, immigrant community that uh, still lives there? Is it a younger generation of Chinese Canadians uh, that are also you know, wanting to be closer to their culture, knowing that this is their heritage well as, as well that needs to be protected? The faces, the names, who are these people resisting for the Chinatowns? Well, I mean, I think it's all of the above. Hmm. In a way, you know, uh, the historic urban Chinatowns have been in the cities that they're in, often for, you know, over a century, like 150 years in the case of Montreal and Vancouver as well. So, you know, there there are seniors that live there, low-income people that live there. Um, all, but also, even as, you know, things have evolved, people have moved to the suburbs, um, People still come back to the original Chinatowns for uh, cultural practices. The family associations that have been there for centuries continue to be there and continue to be places of, um, you know, gathering spaces for the community, places where, you know, cultural traditions are are practiced. So it's a big mix of, of a lot of different things. And of course, there's also tourists that come and even, you know, newer immigrants or, or folks who aren't necessarily even Chinese, you know, find uh, a place. In the, in the Chinatown, be it for affordable food or housing or, you know, um, as a means of kind of maybe reconnecting with a part of their culture that they've perhaps lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at uh, Chinatown today, so I see a, a, a significant Chinese community and uh, growing as well. But how much of it uh, of the challenges that Chinatown has has to do with the fact that the community itself has moved to the suburbs, as you had mentioned. So you see the significant amount of amazing Chinese restaurants, retailers in communities like Richmond, uh, in communities like uh, Surrey. You look uh, next door or just down the street on Main and 49th, which once was the Punjabi market and still is the Punjabi market for South Asians. But so much of South Asian shopping and eating has moved to the suburbs, the Surreys and the Abbotsford. How much of this, when you talk about the Chinatowns, does Chinatown also have to compete with the suburbs where, you know, Chinese consumers, and I'm not, not saying they're the only ones who go to Chinatown, but they still wish to shop and eat and play in air-conditioned shopping malls? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that you're making, and I think there's an important distinction to be made between, you know, Chinatown, the historic Chinatown, and kind of ethno-cultural communities mm-hmm. in the suburbs. You know, Chinatown is much more than a kind of, uh, economic uh, transaction. It's much more than a place that you you buy something or you eat something. Of course, there is that part of Chinatown. It's very much a part of the neighborhood, but it's a place of of belonging. Um, it's a place of cultural practice. It's a place of you know visiting your you know the the your grandfather, your grandmother on the weekend. Um, and it's also a site of resistance. Yeah, you know, like like the Chinatown historically. Uh, was a place for marginalized people, not even necessarily Chinese uh, Chinese folks, but all marginalized people, be they low income or, or from other ethnocultural groups. You know, it was a neighborhood of sanctuary. And it does continue to be that for many marginalized groups of people. So, you know, Chinatown itself is more than just, you know, my ability to buy Asian groceries somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you can arguably get bubble tea or Chinese groceries anywhere in the city. 
But where can you go and and visit family associations that have been operating out of a neighborhood for over a century? Or go to like the Hansing Athletic Club, for example, and see, you know, lion dance and dragon dance being practiced. And these kind of cultural things have been happening. Well, uh, you know, uh, Danny Kwan says it in the film for for over a millennia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, there's so much more to Chinatown than just the kind of economic stuff on the on the outside well said karen thank you so much for your time karen joe is the director of big fight in little chinatown and correct me if i'm wrong here karen uh, your documentary kicks off the docs of film festival which begins this thursday yes that's correct it, it'll be screening at 7 p.m at the sfu cinema thank you so much for your time really enjoyed our conversation all the best to you thank you we were just talking about Chinatown. Karen Cho's um, a new documentary called Big Fight in Little Chinatown. She looks at uh, Chinatowns throughout North America as they try to revitalize these very important uh, uh, neighborhoods. Let's go to another neighborhood um, that is also part of our history. That is, of course, Gastown. Ted Field was on uh, last hour, and we were talking a little bit about what a great place it is to, to, to visit and walk, but sometimes there are those of us who feel perhaps it's seen its better days. There's been challenges, of course, in, in, during COVID and post-COVID, but how do you revitalize a neighborhood like Gastown? Joining me now is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilor. Today, she, along with the mayor and her other colleagues, uh, were at Gastown talking about a motion that they're going to be introducing, I do believe, next week to talk about how do you revitalize that very important neighborhood. Uh, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Good to be back. Yeah, so walk me through this. What kind of things would you like to see or the, the council like to see in regards to revitalizing Gastown? So there's a, a few components to this motion, and I, I think high level, it's really about setting a bold vision for the neighborhood moving forward and specifically looking at opportunities to pedestrianize it that make it either car-free or car-light on a, a year-round or seasonal basis. I think as our cities densify increasingly, people are craving spaces where they can just be and enjoy space and spread out. More opportunities for patios, for music, festivals, events, um, for more public art, just an opportunity to create great outdoor gathering spaces that are car-free. So that's a big part of it. And the other part is about investing in the neighborhood because we've seen a lot of degradation uh, in the streets. You see a lot of the cobbles, um, a lot of uneven sidewalks. And so it's uh, looking to invest in it now in the short term and also develop this longer-term vision. Is that the city's responsibility in regards to the repairing the roads and sidewalks and all of that? I guess the question is, why did it get to that point that you need to be repairing it now? Well, I think we've seen historic underinvestment in a lot of our neighborhoods. Um, you know, you were just talking about Chinatown, uh, mm-hmm. same in Gastown, same in Granville Street. And we've also spoken about that and revitalizing, um, looking at public space opportunities there. And that's been a real focus for this council is investing in our neighborhoods and in our cities and places and spaces because that supports livability. Mm-hmm. When you say pedestrianize Water Street, I mean, is would the cities would seriously look at just banning vehicles? Uh, down uh, Water Street, and yeah, yeah, I was talking earlier to Ted Field, and I said, you know, it'd be great to, if they just had tables there, coffee shops where you could actually walk out on the street, don't have to worry about cars coming by. Is that something the, the, the council would seriously consider? Yeah, absolutely. That is a huge part of this motion, is looking at the opportunity to fully pedestrianize it. And one of the part of the motion suggests that we try a pilot this summer for a month or on the weekends or perhaps next summer 2024 working with the BIA and uh, the stakeholders in Gastown because what we saw is that I think that sparks the public imagination of what the space could really be like if you take those bold steps. And the other part of the motion suggests that we also look at the opportunity to change the 
uh, Cordova Street from a one-way to a two-way flow that would better enable traffic, work with TransLink around what would be required in terms of supporting buses, and that would enable the opportunity to pedestrianize so that um, traffic could still flow through and access the area. Um, some would say that Gastown can never be uh, can never reach its full potential until we deal with the issues in the downtown east side. And you can make things a little bit better, of course, in some of the ideas that you have there. But ultimately, we have to do a lot better in the neighborhood next door. Do you think uh, you can do what you want to do? Um, and how much of an impact do you think the downtown east side and, and, and improving things there in some capacity, even for safety, before you can actually make the changes? I mean, they seem to me as, as na- neighborhoods interconnected. And you One can't really move forward until you do better in the other one. I, I think that's exactly the word I was going to use. I was going to say they are interconnected. And, and my response would be that vibrant neighborhoods are safe neighborhoods. Um, when you add lighting, when you have people on the street, when there are things going on, that creates that sense of vibrancy and a sense of safety. And I think that they're interconnected. Um, and for example, I go back to the Granville Promenade when we piloted that for a couple of summers, it felt instantly like a different street. It brought people in of all ages abilities. You had people on scooters, people in wheelchairs, all ages, families and others. And I think it really showed the power of reimagining public space. And so um, we definitely have a lot of work to do in terms of the downtown east side neighborhood. But I think building the vibrancy of public spaces is actually going to help to address a lot of our challenges. Councillor Young, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Recently, um, a significant amount of coverage on this program, many others, uh, with the federal government uh, approving the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project. That's the project out um, by the Tawasin Port. Uh, the cost of that expansion will be more than $2 billion, significant amount of controversy. Uh, it was approved, but like I said, uh, subject to 370 legally binding conditions. It will mean, of course, that freighters will be coming and going even even uh, much uh, in a much bigger capacity than they do now because they will add significantly more uh, space for the port uh, to do its business. You see a lot of these freighters out in the English Bay as well. Well, freighter frustration is growing in the southern Gulf Islands as well. Groups there are saying that the temporary, temporary overflow anchorages there, they're seeing many, many more vessels. Um, the, the, the area, these anchorages... Um, or temporary. They're not supposed to be made permanent, but they believe that the port have made a lot of these anchorages permanent and has been changing life for a lot of the residents in that area. Mary Dupre is a Ladysmith resident. She's also part of a group called the South Coast Ship Watch Alliance. Mary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about the changes you and your colleagues from your organization have seen over the years uh, on the Gulf Islands when it comes to anchorages and and these uh, and these vessels. Yes, absolutely. Uh, firstly, to say that uh, we are we are not against shipping. We do support shipping. Mm-hmm. We just want to see it managed uh, in the twenty first century uh, with with some standards. One thing that a lot of the general public are not aware of is that. Um, Container shipping, for example, um, so you have your, your goods uh, that are going to your Best Buys, your Walmart, your, Co- your Costco's, that, those types of goods that are incoming, mm-hmm. they are extremely efficient. They, uh, they run on a schedule, they come in, they, they um, unload, they're gone. They don't spend any kind of time lurking about. Where, what we're very concerned about are the cargo freighters. And these are the ones that ship coal, potash, um, uh, aviation fuel, uh, mm-hmm. quite a lot of high-risk 
uh, goods, if you will. And what's happened is, is the federal government, Transport Canada, in 2018, they uh, imposed what's called an interim protocol to the 30, there are 33 um, historical anchorages around the southern Gulf Islands. So all around uh, this area, the Salish Sea, which is a very fragile environment, uh, marine environment, um, very shallow in the islands. It's known as the nursery of the Salish Sea. This is where we see, a lo- obviously, grabbing, fishing, prawning, all that kind of activity happens. As, our, as the Indigenous people used to say, when the tide goes out, the table is set. Yes. We're not seeing that so much anymore, are we? Mm-hmm. Um, so these 33 historical anchorages, they were never intended to be, to be used uh, for freighters of this size. They, uh, this is, they were from way back in the day. But Transport Canada has decided to impose this interim protocol in 2018. And at first we thought, oh, well, you know, interim, that means temporary. And that's not what this means at all. An interim protocol is actually an emergency measure. And so it means that they can do whatever they want, frankly, um, while this interim protocol is going on. And while this has been going on since 2018, mm-hmm. they have hugely increased the, um, the permissions for uh, international uh, freighters to come and park here. It's, it's, quite, it's quite bizarre, actually. Do you feel unsafe? Um, do you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you're familiar at all with Ladysmith, it's quite mm-hmm. hilly. Um, and so from the hilltop vantage point where I am, I can see nine anchorages uh, through Ladysmith Harbor, Shemanus, over to Khalid Bay, Trincomanie Sound. There have been over 100 uh, freighters that have uh, dragged anchor in the last five years. Uh, there have been two that collided in Plumper Sound off, off Pender. Uh, one tore a huge hole in the other. There, uh, we also saw the, the freighter, or, well, that was actually a container ship that was out in the, uh, in the strait that uh, containers uh, were sent overboard because they were on fire. So there's, there's a massive, massive environmental risk that's going on right right in front of us. Now, have you taken Even your case? With, have you taken your case to government, to the port, and say, look, this is supposed to be temporary, yet it's essentially permanent the way you're describing it, and there is danger. Mm-hmm. You don't feel safe as a community member. It's not environmentally or uh, even just aesthetically something you want to be seeing outside your window. And, I mean, there's there's a role for uh, uh, shipping in waterways, as you say, but this is not Certainly. what, what, but what was... But they don't have... They, we, we, oh, yes, we have. We've gone... So you go to the port of Vancouver and you speak to them, they are 100%, their mandate is to serve industry. What they have created is a free parking lot for freighters, coal, potash, etc. They can arrive early... It's about weeks, months in advance, and we're not a port. So they do not pay anchorage fees. They do not pay discharge fees. There's no rules, regulations, safety, oversight, nothing. In a port, they can't discharge what's called scrubbers. And you know about scrubbers? They Mm -hmm. sound clean, right? Yes. Um, Each ship generates 10 tons of greenhouse gas per day. People don't want to look at that. So they take it and they mix it into a chemical toxic soup and they discharge it out into the water. This liquid is so toxic, it, it creates dead zones. If you, it, it's quite appalling what is going on. 
And nobody knows about it. Um, the port is saying, oh, well, that's not our responsibility. We're only responsible for the port. Transport Canada says, oh, well, that's not our responsibility. That's Coast Guard's responsibility to see if there's a spillage. Has your member it, of parliament, have you taken this to your member of parliament? To, to, absolutely. To, and and absolutely. nothing. We have uh, had great uh, response from uh, Elizabeth May, um, Alistair McGregor, Cowichan, um, Lisa Marie Barron in Nanaimo. Um, they have all there, and um, also uh, Laurel uh, Collins, uh, environment critic. Um, so they are—they're really trying to, to move this forward. But it's—it's it's really quite frightening the speed at which Transport Canada is is moving this through. They have now introduced a bill, Bill um, C thirty three, to Parliament, and what that will give them is permission to give the Port of Vancouver authority all of, of, around all of these. Um, Anchorages around the southern Gulf Islands. To tell you how ludicrous this is, mm-hmm. the Americans have banned the shipping of thermal coal from their ports because of health and environment issues. Right? Yep. So we allow them to rail it up to Roberts Bank and ship their thermal coal from there to China for burning. Now, the San Juan Island citizens and residents went to their public officials. And we're able to um, uh, create a ban on anchorages around the southern, or pardon me, around the San Juan Islands because they're fragile. How bizarre is it that just within stone throwing distance, uh, right where our orca protection areas are, is where they're parking these disgusting rust buckets? Yeah. Um, the, you know, Transport Canada and, and Department of Fisheries, was it today or yesterday, were patting themselves on the back saying how wonderful they are because, when, you know, they're protecting the orcas, so they're going to stop some fishing. Really, you're going to stop fishing while you're letting this be turned into an industrial parking lot. Mary, it's, it's truly quite weird. I understand that frustration for sure. Mary, we've run out of time. Look forward to chatting with you yeah. on this issue again. It's not a, a one-time interview, that's for sure. Le- <laughs> would love to stay stay in touch with yeah. you on this issue because I know it is ongoing and, and so many of our listeners do live out in that area as well. We Thank do, you. We do have a website called nofreighteranchorages.ca. Anchor- no that's nofreighteranchorages.ca. Tons of information and facts if anybody's interested. Nofreighteranchorages.ca. Nofreighteranchorages.ca. Thank you yeah. so much, Mary. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right. Thousands of screenwriters went on strike uh, overnight after six weeks of negotiations for a new film and scripted TV contract uh, came to a stalemate. Now, the existing contract between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers includes a lot of heavy hitters, uh, Netflix, um, NBC Universal, Amazon, Apple, Disney, Sony, uh, officially expired at uh, midnight, which kicked off um, the walkout. Uh, writers have been seeking a major overhaul and compensation for uh, streaming residuals, as well as higher pay overall. Now, one uh, already knows the impact of uh, Hollywood here on Vancouver and on British Columbia. We are, of course, Hollywood North. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the strike and the impact on BC's film industry is Amy Lang, president of North Shore Studios and Mammoth Studios. Amy, Amy, thank you for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So what impact do you see and are you seeing any impact already here in Vancouver? Uh, Well, it's definitely a little bit early to kind of define the exact impact. Um, but it will really vary on two things, uh, where our current productions are in their production cycle, mm-hmm. 
are they further along in the writing process? Are they ready to go to camera? You know, certain variables such as that. And and then again, obviously, as long as as uh, long as it lasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned some names uh, off the top in the introduction. Uh, Netflix and Amazon streaming has played such a significant role uh, in um, in the production in regards to how we consume uh, media today. How much of a role is Netflix and Amazon, Apple Plus? What kind of how much of an impact are they having on the local production scene? Well, absolutely, a large impact. I mean. Certainly, they are a significant portion of our production service volume here in BC, um, which we recognize. And but we understand that a disruption to their business model, um, you know, which is probably delayed by the pandemic because of the huge um, surplus of demand for content in the last couple of years, is now kind of coming to light in their negotiations. So certainly more complex than it was when they were uh, when when they were at strike mm-hmm. when 2000. Seven and eight, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely, it plays a part. Um, I'm curious. Um, I was thinking, and this is me aging myself. I'm thinking about the old days of television, where writers would work on, let's say, a hit show, and and uh, hopefully, it one day would hit. I think it's a hundred episodes, and it hit syndication. There would be residuals. Uh, you know, you think of older shows like Cheers and, and, and many other shows um, that have hit that mark. There would be residuals for writers. Uh, does that happen or, or that's just a, it's a different funding model now with streaming where they pay you once, once you've done what you've done and there, there are no residuals anymore? Yeah, and I mean, that's absolutely what they're talking about. And so it is it is a formula and calculation that I know that they're both trying to figure out to see what does it look like. Um, also, when they have different metrics to measure a show's success, so it's necessarily not who's, who's tuning in on the night of the air date, it's who's tuning in, who's watching the show in its entirely, and lots of other metrics that are very unique to the current business model that I, that they're working through and trying to figure out. Yeah, I was I was reading uh, a little bit on, you know, when we, when we think of television and ratings and viewership, you think of one night, what, who, who was watching what last night, but now, uh, you know, you could be watching it in the traditional way, you could be watching it on your phone or your computer screen, you could be watching it four days after the fact on your PVR, and you've mm-hmm. got to somehow, I guess... Um, uh, calculate all of that and decide who's watching and how much someone should be compensated by. I'm very curious in regards to this ever-evolving and changing world, in in regards to the competitive nature of television and movies, how is Vancouver faring overall? There was a time in my early reporting days where Toronto was spending a lot of money on tax credits. I'm thinking probably 2008, 2007, that sort of area, maybe a little bit later than that, 2010 or 11, really trying to make a mark in the movie business. But there are many other states in the U.S., obviously, that are also trying to compete. Where do we sit and how are we competing overall in regards to other um, uh, jurisdictions when it comes to attracting and keeping television movie production? Uh, You know, great question. There's certainly a lot of factors that make us a very attractive uh, location. Tax credits are one of them. And, you know, as an industry, we want to make sure we keep our eye on, are we competitive in the tax credit landscape? Uh, I know that there's uh, lots of people who are focused on that every day. And, but there's other, you know, pillars of why, why Hollywood wants to come here. One of them is proximity to LA, and that's a great uh, value add. We've got a deep and experienced crew base, which we continue to add to. And we have lots of purpose-built facilities, which makes it easy for them to do business in BC. Could you build a studio today based on our land costs, uh, our density challenges, our housing challenges? Could you build a North Shore Studios today? 
It would certainly cost a little bit more, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's one of the things when you see, uh, you know, the studios in Burnaby, you see North Shore Studios, and and I was hearing some uh, someone was mentioning to me recently they want to build something similar out in Langley, and there's always those types of um, conversations. But uh, it, it is uh, part of it is, I think, just one of our challenges, I guess, is going to be land costs as well if, if this industry continues to grow and expand. Mm-hmm. It's a mature industry in BC, and um, you know, it's really a long-term play, and it's been a it's been a long, you know, strong industry for the last thirty years. So those investing now are are probably not looking at the next three to five years; they're looking at the next twenty-five to thirty-five, and and you know, seeing growth and and then going forward with development. Do you expect this strike to go on for long? It seems to me just, and this is me just reading up as much as I possibly can on it. Is it seems that these uh, differences are quite entrenched. It's not one side or the other, and negotiations always occur in these things, and you have to be patient. But these differences are not just small and philosophical. Uh, they speak to a, a moment in this industry where you could almost be coming up with a new formula to compensate writers, new formula in regards to the business of TV and movies, because technology is changing things so quickly as well uh, with streaming services as well. Is this one of those moments where things may be entrenched for a while before they come to some sort of solution? You know, I'm hopeful that I think they see that while they are, you know, philosophically very new issues that we're dealing with, the business model is one, you know, um, I think they also realize that these negotiation contracts are, are shorter term in nature, three years. So, you know, the expectation to turn the Titanic on a dime, you know, is probably not the expectation and that they'll come to some agreement quickly to at least move it in the right direction for both sides of the party. Mm-hmm. Well, fingers crossed. I love my streaming services. I love a great story, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and I wouldn't be able to do it without those writers and those streaming services and many other productions as well on, on traditional television and movies as well. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for your time. No, you're very welcome. All Thanks right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.